Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album, and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It's either an extremely complex story uh, that somebody else is involved, or it's exactly has been presented in the press, um, a guy that just went off his rocker. Well, it's just the gory details are, are overpowering. And to suddenly take news off the front page and put it in your heart is a, uh, you know, it's, it's surprising. In some form or another, it'll happen to all of us as we work our way through life. This one comes with uh, dramatic pictures and headlines. Hey guys, welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting on a cozy couch next to Billy Jensen and across from Alexis Linkletter in a swivel chair in Alexis's apartment. We're feeling nice and cozy. We are. Are you, Billy? I'm feeling very cozy because you know what today is? What is it? It's phone in sick day. Phone in sick day? Yes. Is it? Did you almost phone in sick to the First Degree taping? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did you? Why? Because I was late? Yeah. Which, by the way, I will have to apologize. Yes. We we're supposed to record last night, and I got a last-minute invite to the Backstreet Boys concert from AJ McLean himself, and I couldn't say no. Why yeah. would you? You can't. None of us said anything. We're, like, understandable. Yeah we, yeah, we totally get it. Backstreet's back. Backstreet's back. All right. And it was all that I wanted and more. You're all I... Oh, and royalties. I, royalties. Sorry. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> I slept 30 minutes last night, so I'm You're, feeling good. That's why I was like, Billy, get here earlier. I'm and did, so tired. Did you uh, um, take a private plane there, too? We flew Jet Suite. Okay. Uh, so, like, uh, half private, but half, it's cheap. Half private. I love Jet Suite. I do, jet, I do that, too. Yeah. It's good shit. Um, is there any other good holidays? Or do you have a connection it's to a mo- crime? Mother, do- Mother Goose Day. Mm. I don't even know what that means. Mother Goose? Is. You know who Mother Goose is? That nursery rhymes? Oh, Oh my god! Warren. You guys are you guys are closer to being babies than I am, and I how do I know who Mother Goose is? I don't know. There wasn't all. Oh, all right, fine. I won't do it. <laughs> the I royalties. Gonna, I was gonna start, mother, you can say nursery rhymes. Those are royalty free. Um, okay, <laughs> before we start, I need I needed to remember to do this. We are going to CrimeCon. I haven't really announced it yet. So here's the announcement. We're going to CrimeCon. We're going to be on Podcast Row. So if you guys are going, come and meet us. And if you want to go, you can get 10% off your tickets by using our code, which is... I need to check. While Jack's checking the code, we're going to be wearing matching outfits and Billy's (laughs) going to be wearing a matching boutonniere. Yes. Right? 
if you guys say so. Yes, that's <laughs> be I don't think they've announced that I'm coming yet. So this is the this is the first degree sneak peek. This is the first degree yeah, sneak peek. You guys know. So this is what you get when you listen to first degree is that you find out before everybody else. I know. We know the no- news before everybody yeah. else. You're welcome. Billy's coming. Use our code degree19 and you can get 10% You're going to see Billy's softer side wearing a boutonniere. It's going to be good that shit. Means if I'm wearing a boutonniere, does that mean I have to wear a suit too? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm wearing a suit. We're going to all wear matching red suits and then people can talk to you about red? their feelings. Red suits? I'm yeah. wearing a red suit. Okay. Red's not really my color. <laughs> it makes it's, you look way too like um, hot topic It's goth. good in a bo- <laughs> with a boutonniere. It'll be solid. You wear some matching socks. You wear a matching bow tie. Okay. A bu- I got to wear a bow tie too. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 110 right, percent i'm just get the, gonna have the shit i'll just buy you an outfit of, it's okay. okay and let's start our case now before alexa says something she regrets i don't i regret nothing same so today's story takes us back to tuesday march 2nd in 1976 a dry spring day in north carolina a fire ban had been issued for a number of days due to the intense dry spell in Tyrell County. What Billy, how would you say that? I mean, I, I, I'm guessing it's... Tyrell. Tyrell? Tyrell. Tyrell, North Carolina, <laughs> was experiencing this hot weather, and Warden, Warden Wilma Swain was on duty, and she was up in a fire tower a few miles away from this wooded area, and she spotted smoke in the distance coming from a stretch of wilderness. She radioed Ranger Ronald Brickhouse and asked him to check it out. And Brickhouse could see the smoke as he drew near, but he wasn't terribly alarmed due to the size of the smoke plumes. They weren't huge. So he kind of stepped calmly through the dry, dusty brush and noticed that there was this burning underbrush. And he kept moving until he observed a large bathtub-sized pit dug in the ground. In the area, it's a weird area. It was right beside an abandoned logging road. And he got out of his car and he used a tree limb to clear a path ahead. And he hoped the firefighters would quickly answer his radio to appeal for help because things were kind of spreading at this point. And acres of of this brush was catching on fire. By the way, it's Terrell. Terrell County. Yeah. So he walked towards the fire and looks at the pit that's dug into the ground. And we need to give a a warning that it, this starts getting a little gruesome mm-hmm. if anybody wants to turn well, it off right now. All true crime podcasts do, but yes, actually, you're right. Good, good call. Yes. Um, there is explicit violence. Yeah. Um, in this episode against people of a variety of ages. Yes. So something to yes, but partic- and it and it starts right here. So something in the pit was smoldering. And he's walking up to this thing and he's expecting maybe it's a pig carcass or an animal or something that's smoldering. But he stands at the edge of the pit and this pit is, like you said, bathtub size, about six feet long, three feet wide. But instead of finding a pig or a dog, he's staring at the bodies of two fully clothed women, one lying on top of the other. The bodies appeared to have been tossed into the grave kind of haphazardly by someone who were driven away hurriedly, leaving behind a heavy shovel, a five-gallon gas can, and a pitchfork. And gasoline um, uh, was drenched over the bodies. They were smoldering. They were almost sizzling. And the ranger 
immediately radios the sheriff for help. And as he was waiting for the investigators to arrive, he noticed footprints and heavy tire tracks on the logging road, which he knew that dead ended not far from where the grave was at. And anybody but a Terrell County native would have had a hard time finding this section of the road um, because it was within the 364,000 acres of forests, swamps, croplands, and waterways. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's a super remote area. And the initial idea was that somebody local must be responsible. So the sheriffs did arrive to the area as quickly as they could. And by using a tree limb, you can tell it's the the 70s. (laughs) They used a tree limb to push apart the bodies in the grave. And to their shock and horror, they discover three more bodies underneath. Three little boys wearing pajamas. So immediately a dozen of the State Bureau of Investigation agents arrived and kind of start swarming the area. They observe a tall pile of dirt next to the grave, suggesting to law enforcement that whomever drove the bodies there left in a hurry without finishing the job. And the plan was likely to cover them up after the fire had done what it was supposed to do. So the suggestion is that whoever set this fire probably lost control of the fire it just got way too crazy they got scared and they left once the um uh, the gasoline set the brush on fire dr r page hudson arrived on the scene and he was the state's chief medical examiner he began to examine the bodies he described the bodies as those of a woman 60 years old or older wearing a brown and white basket weave jacket with a fur collar short sleeve sweater and plaid slacks. A younger woman in her 30s with long black hair and clad in blue jeans and a blue denim jacket. He observed three boys ranging 4 to 14 and again they were wearing their pajamas and each had a bloodstained towel wrapped around their heads. Jeez. So Sheriff Royce Rhodes arrived to the scene and looked at the victims and he said that these people are not from around here. If they were, I'd know them. They've been driven here from somewhere else. And so this case started getting nationwide publicity. And that's because the mystery of the identity of the five murder victims was going to persist for a couple days. Right. Because it's like, how has no one reported them missing? A whole entire assuming family. Exactly. Okay. So the day after the five bodies were discovered, Dr. Hudson, the medical examiner, released his official findings. He said that the five victims had been dead for less than 24 hours before that they were found. All five, he said, had been beaten to death with a blunt instrument before that they were cast into the grave and drenched and each victim had multiple violent injuries and the little boys had apparently been killed in their sleep so at the scene the police discovered a shovel next to the grave and it bore a serial number and the name of Potch's hardware store in potomac virginia they were able to garner some other clues by analyzing the clothing they were all wearing also a label on the elderly woman's jacket bore the name of Saks chevy chase Interesting name of the store. Maryland. Very interesting name. Chevy Chevy Chase is a town in Maryland. It is? Mm -hmm. 
Is that what Chevy Chase was named after? I think he probably was, yeah. Interesting. Look at you're you just nuggets of wisdom climbed. coming from over here. You must really love that random small town. <laughs> <clears throat> Shoes on the younger woman bore the label of the Hans shoe store in Chevy Chase. Could they use any of these clues to identify these victims? And as far as the physical evidence, law enforcement was able to develop a set of fingerprints from the gasoline can left by the fire. So now they had prints, but they needed a suspect to compare them to. The next thing they did was contact dozens of North Carolina East Coast schools seeking info on absent students, because the idea would be if three kids from the same family are missing, that's kind of a noticeable glaring situation. So artists created renderings of the faces of the older and the younger woman found in the grave. TV stations broadcast these drawings. Nobody comes forward with a description of any missing persons that could correspond to those women or the kids in the grave. Road blockades were thrown up on Highway 64, which was the highway that was closest to the grave and and to the fire. And the dozens of truckers who used the road daily were questioned. Is this very quite rare that nobody is making any sort of a connection. I think in 76 more common. Yeah. Because if you, if you opted to drive your, the bodies of your victims out of town. Yeah. And it's hard to connect that a hundred percent because they didn't have social media. They didn't have email. Yeah. It's like you had to call in like post missing flyers. Yeah. They barely had cable TV. CNN wasn't around. It was not like, Hey, this fan, this whole family is missing. Yeah. You know, you know, right around this same time, we're talking about 76 in, um, you know. The, the Golden State Killer? No, not the Golden State. Well, the Golden State <laughs> Killer was around then, too. We can name a, a million different killers. But the Allenstown 4 case was happening around this same time. Mm-hmm. And that was a, what was almost a whole family that, was, that had gone missing. And um, their bodies were found, and they still haven't identified them yet. Right. So, <laughs> recalibrating. The gruesome nature of this crime was obviously inconceivable. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to the investigators that this was an entire family that had been murdered. And it seemed that the method of this murder, we're not dealing with gunshots. We're not, you know, it was personal. I mean, bludgeoning is a rather intimate. You have to be right up close. And the fact that you could do this to children is, is beyond lots of rage. So who would do such a horrific thing? Why would someone do this? And is it possible that no one in the area would would notice an entire family missing? And it maybe started to have the the police started wondering, like, hey, maybe they're not from around here. So a few days pass before the police get their first clue. And two truckers came forward and said that they had seen a maroon Chevy station wagon with Maryland license plates on the 64 highway Tuesday morning, a few hours before the bodies had been found. And nobody had seen the station wagon after Tuesday morning. So this wasn't exactly a smoking gun, but it was a lead and seemed to be their first lead. So the North Carolina SBI agents attempted to use a shovel found at the scene to make a break in the case. They checked Potch's hardware store in Potomac. Potomac? Oh my God, I can't speak. Potomac sounds right. Billy? Potomac. <laughs> I am so bad at no, pronouncing I'm cities. Like, I'm like Jack. You're wrong. It's this, and then it's I'm also wrong. So <laughs> fuck. Wait, Potomac. No, he's right. He's right because Potomac. now that I hear that like the Potomac River. Yeah, it's like in Long Island, lots of things are named that, and I don't know why I'm not better at these names. <laughs> Muskegon, I should have nailed. I'm from Nissaquag. Exactly, you're from Nissaquag. It's shameful. It's shameful. It is shameful. We have Massapequa. 
Hatchog. That's right. Kumsquag. Okay. Kumsquag. Anyways, so. Garden City. That's, that's, <laughs> that one's that, easy. That, that one's that, easy. That's, that's, that's <laughs> okay, so they checked the store that was labeled on this shovel. And the store said that they sold hundreds of these shovels that were exactly like that. And there was no way of knowing who purchased it. Again, this was in the 70s. There was no surveillance cameras. And probably people were always using cash. Mm, they had credit cards, though. Would, but the, it was probably way harder to trace a credit card. Yeah, because they were using that slide, the, using that, yeah, it that was like machine the slider. Paper. Exactly. Like the imprint the, was thing. It the imprint yeah. thing, or you had like a diner's club card or something. Yeah. I mean, credit cards were not. Easily my dad traceable. used to walk around just with a big wad of cash. Yeah. Yeah. I bet How he did Daddy you... Jensen in the mm-hmm. house. How did people do taxes back in the day? That is hard. Okay. They cheated. Yeah, they oh, lied. Probably so much easier. Also related to Daddy Jensen, the whole cheating on the taxes thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, he's passed. So if you, you would know that if you had listened to the book, but yeah. I know that Billy. <laughs> I didn't know that he. I don't a, listen to the book because I'm always slaving, slaving away on podcast <laughs> research. <laughs> we are on one today. Yeah. Okay, so they tried to find the shovel, trace the shovel back, couldn't figure it out. And there was also no record at the sack store in Chevy Chase showing who had bought the fur collar jacket worn by the elderly woman in the grave. And also, there were no way to trace the shoes worn by the younger woman either. So all their like leads of what they found there were coming up cold. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So at this point, the ensuing investigation is moving along with no real developments or breaks in the case. And everyone is baffled, like I said, at the fact they haven't been able to identify this family yet with how many of them are missing, including three little boys. So the investigation in North Carolina is essentially at a standstill. But a significant development did take place on March 8th, six entire days after the discovery of the bodies in the fire. And this development occurred in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Bethesda, Maryland. So alarm bells started ringing when some neighbors had become uneasy over the unexplained absence of an entire family, the William Bradford Bishop Jr. family. And they lived in a $100,000 split-level shingled gray frame home in a wooded upper-class section of Lilystone Drive in Carter Rock Springs, Bethesda. And the investigators soon learned that the bishops had last been seen around their home at about 6.30 p.m. on Monday, March 1st. The day before, those five unidentified bodies had been discovered in the woods in North Carolina. So the bishops had been missing for about a week. They left their 1973 Volkswagen in the driveway, but there was no sign of the family's maroon Chevy station wagon which is the one they usually took vacations with. And they were also missing the family's golden retriever, whose name was Leo. No, Leo. No. So the person who had called the police was a neighbor of the Bishop family named Mrs. Lori Morrow. She called the Montgomery County Police Department after hearing that news reports about the bodies that were found over in North Carolina. She heard about the number of bodies and immediately realized how strange it was that she hadn't heard from her neighbors. And she said, there's something wrong at the Bradford Bishop home here. The place is deserted. They've never gone away without asking a neighbor to look over the house. We just don't understand it. So she just felt like something was fishy. And back then it was like Americana. Leave the doors open. Check Mm -hmm. my mail. Keep an eye on the kids. Like, I think there was a lot neighborhoods were a lot more communal right so you would notice if something was off yes and the fact that it's like there hasn't been any activity no you know we didn't say anything it's like people were a lot less glued to their phones they were engaged with their neighbors they were actually noticing their surroundings it's true a little bit yeah it's true so after she called the police they hurried to the bishop home and they met her and a cluster of other neighbors in the driveway and this is when they noticed these glaring red stains on the driveway that resembled footprints and these red stains turned out to be blood. Mrs. Morrow was a close friend of the Bishop family and identified the members of the household as William Bradford Bishop. He was a 39 year old 
um, official in the U.S. State Department. His wife was Annette. She was 37 years old. And his mother, Lavelia. Yeah. Whew, got it. It's right. a beautiful name, actually. Lavelia, I like that. Because there's love in it. That's so nice. And I will say, <clears throat> in the research, 90% of news outlets butchered it and call her Le- like L-O-B. Oh. And I, I was offended. It's like, get the name right. So Lavelia was 68, and she also lived with them. And... There was also the three sons. Oh, William the third, who was fourteen, Brenton, who was ten, and Jeffrey, who was four. So when the police entered the home, they moved from room to room, and it was an empty residence. Although empty, it was a house of horrors, and they observed that the bed and floor of the master bedroom on the first level was splattered with blood, and so were the beds and floors of the three bedrooms on the third level. The walls of the third level bathroom were crimsoned with blood as well. And one officer observed what appeared to be hammer marks on the ceiling above the top bunk bed in one of the boys' bedrooms. The picture was becoming clear. The bishops had been attacked and slain in their home, most likely in quick succession. Most likely the bodies had been removed in the now missing station wagon. And noticeably missing from both gruesome, horrific, horrible scenes was the body of father and husband, Bradford Bishop. So I've been talking for a long time in a row now, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So today's first degree is actually really special. My great aunt, Bobby, Bobby Linkletter Blaze. Hi. So we were at a family gathering. It was a memorial. So it was sad, but her companion slash boyfriend, sorry, Bobby, I don't know if boyfriend's weird once you're a grown up, um, but Tony partner partner companion, what have you. Tony came up to me after hearing about the podcast and said, Alexis, and they've been together for a number of years. So he's, he's seen me around and known me for a bit, but he's like, you know, I have a story for you. And he started telling me about this and he's like, you know, Bradford Bishop was, we were best friends all through grade school, high school. And he just, I was floored because I had heard this name before. Um, this case has been covered across all mediums in a variety of different ways. And I do think this is a, this will be a particularly special one though, because we're hearing it from a perspective of somebody who knew this guy since sixth grade. The goal of the podcast is obviously to shed light from a new vantage point. And that's what we will do. So I asked Tony what it was like when he first heard that any of this had happened back in 1976. You know, the, the, it's, I was going to use Kennedy as an example. I can remember exactly where I was when Kennedy was shot. I can't tell you where I was when I got the news on Brad, except it was almost total disbelief. Well, it's just the gory details are, are overpowering. Just could not imagine that this fellow who we had, you know, known over the years could be the least bit capable. Uh, of a, a mass tragedy, um, that he could be disgruntled, that he could be upset. Um, you know, I've seen him mad on the football field and maybe mad at some discussion, but not irrational and not out of control. So it was it was an unbelievable event, and I think that's fair to say for the people who knew him. First reaction is that can't be, and the second reaction is you know somebody framed it. I mean, there's no way that, that this could have happened 
that he would have done this. So to me, and I think the other friends of his, just have real difficulty, it's probably hope more than anything else, but real difficulty believing that he could have done uh, what apparently happened. So here we have a great question that emerges. Is Bishop dead or is he the perpetrator? Yeah, so now the cops in D.C. and in North Carolina, they're comparing notes. And they're throwing around this exchange of information. And it's established beyond a reasonable doubt that the five bodies taken from the Terrell County grave were Bishop's wife, mother, and three sons. The puzzle pieces are starting to come together. And the emerging picture that we're seeing is chilling. A police detail was at the state's department making an exhaustive check of Bishop's whereabouts. They learned that he was an assistant chief of the Division of Special Trade Activities in the Bureau of Economics and Business Affairs. And he had left his office around 5.30 p.m. on Monday, March 1st, complaining that he was coming down with the flu. And he hadn't been back in the office since. Mm -mm. So the investigation starts as they all do. They start close, work their way outwards, and investigators were interviewing family, friends, and colleagues. One of his colleagues named Jack Gloucester said, Brad was a real guy who was in love with his wife and kids. They were one of the most attractive families I ever knew. Brad was open and honest, Mr. Clean, an all-American boy. He and his wife played tennis. Annette was preoccupied with her art and studies at the University of Maryland. I've never known them to have a family complication. So during the next two days, police swarmed um, the Carter Rock section of Bethesda, seeking out acquaintances who had known the bishops well. Anything to figure out what was going on. So... What mysterious force had entered the bishop's beautiful and ideal family relationship to snuff out the lives of the mother, wife, and three children, possibly even that of Bishop himself? So he was brand to his friends, and I met him in 1947 at a uh, little private school in Pasadena, sixth grade. We went through uh, sixth through ninth grade at that school and then went on to South Pasadena San Marino High School. We uh, graduated in 1954. Uh, I went on to school and he went on to Yale. He was uh, athletic, he was a good student, personable, but he was a good friend. In high school, he ran for, uh, he ran for various student body offices. He was looked at as, as a leader in high school. Our relationship, which started sixth grade through high school, was close. We had half a dozen friends that uh, had basically all sort of kept tabs with each other throughout the years. But it was close enough that uh, when I graduated from college in uh, 58, shortly thereafter I got married and he was a groomsman in my wedding. High school, we married his high school sweetheart. Uh, Gal, that was a year behind him in high school. But it was a relationship that uh, started in high school, continued on through college. And my remembrance was Annette continued to go to school on the West Coast while he was in Yale. And they, I believe they got married shortly after they graduated, after he graduated from college. So they seemed to make a, uh, a very logical pair. 
So they had a, they had a sort of a lengthy relationship. Not a particularly aggressive woman, um, but seemed to be a good partner for him. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So Bradford and Annette Catherine Weiss personified the ideals of the mid-20th century America. Tall, handsome, intelligent California boy meets intelligent, artistic, beautiful girl. Boy goes to Yale, girl goes to Berkeley. Boy and girl gets married. Girl pursues the arts and athletics while caring for three young boys who are also intelligent and handsome. Annette was born in Toledo, Ohio. Her family moved to California in 1938. They settled in San Marino and she attended South Pasadena High School. So he and Annette had been high school sweethearts in California. And a homemade film shot at the time shows them to be a beautiful and popular couple. Brad was a hero on the football fields and Annette cheered him on as a majorette. After he graduated from Yale and she from Berkeley, they got married. A little background on Bradford Bishop. His father, William Bradford Bishop I, was an independent geologist. And once they got together, their lives had been really filled with experiences. They lived in Europe and Africa, ski trips, tennis swimming meets, art classes, PTA meetings. And it all ended abruptly, brutally, mysteriously. The question of why prevails. So 37-year-old Annette was enrolled as a full-time student at the main campus of the University of Maryland. She was, according to her sculpture professor, determined and enthusiastic. And as for Bradford, he became a first-class foreign services officer. And that that meant that he was able to go on a bunch of international tours. So when they returned in 1974... Is when Bishop's mother moved in with them after the death of Bishop Sr. Bradford continued to get these assignments, and every time he brought his whole family with him to Ethiopia, Botswana, Italy, etc. And on top of the variety of languages that he spoke, he was a graduate of Yale and had several degrees, actually, including a BS in history, BA in American studies, a master's in Italian, and graduate work from the University of Florence as well as a graduate degree in African studies from UCLA. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, geez. He was a, he was a licensed, licensed pilot. Smart guy. <laughs> he learned to fly. He, was, um, he liked to ski, motorcycle, swim, play tennis. He's just a well-rounded Did guy. Did everything, geez. Yeah. Uh, you know, he went from Yale uh, into the Army. Um, while he was in the Army, I know he went up to the uh, Monterey School which was considered, uh, the best of my knowledge, was a language school and or uh, intelligence training school. Uh, he spent uh, three years in the service, as did I. And he, uh, after that, when he got out of the service, 
went to work for the government. Um, he was, uh, there was an element of it that was aggressive. I mean, he was seeking things. He certainly uh, wasn't sitting in the shadows. So Bradford spent nine years on active duty uh, Navy as an analyst with two years abroad on the USS John F. Kennedy and duty stations in Maryland and the United Kingdom. He had an MBA as well as two-year degree in information systems as a solid foundation of basic cybersecurity principles and concepts. And eventually the bishops did return to their suburban D.C. home after many foreign assignments. Although he rose through the ranks as a statesman and had all of these very impressive achievements and accolades under his belt, it seemed that by the mid-1970s, his career apparently sort of just hit a wall. At 39, he was an assistant chief of special trade activities and commercial treaties in the state's Bureau of Economics and Business Affairs. And while, yes, that sounds very impressive, a title that seems prestigious, etc., he was earning $25,900 per year in 1976, which in today's dollar equates to $117,242.07. So for a family of five, six including his mother, that's not a ton of money. Yeah. It's not, you're not poor, but it's not, you know, given his, his uh, credentials and his education and his Ivy League background right. and his, in, you know, special kind of intelligence training at the army, I feel like he was expecting to be making more. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's got, he's got three kids. His wife is going to school. Art school. So we, we're, but, he's I mean, she that. went to Berkeley. Like, yeah. but you know, I don't know what she studied in her undergraduate, but she was an artist right. and very passionate about art. And, you know, it was a single income family, essentially. So that wasn't a ton of money. But I find the reporting has done a poor job of conveying that because it makes it sound like he was this elite diplomat. They literally call him a diplomat in a lot of the reporting. Yeah. And he wasn't. He just wasn't. He wanted to be, but he wasn't. So one neighbor described him, this neighbor knew him pretty well, as frustrated, lonely, and woman-dominated. And that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't head of his household. His mother was, with the cooperation of Annette. And this neighbor also commented that for a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law relationship, it was one of the best I've ever seen, they said. But for the man in the family, it really wasn't the ideal male thing. The women ran the house. And that sounds very, um, it sounds like it would hit a nerve now, but this was 1976. It was yeah, kind of like. It wasn't the norm at know, all. And that was like the American ideal. It's like you get to stay home and pursue your passions as a woman. And then you, the man is making the income and it's not how it is now, but it's, you know. A great deal of time later but at the time that's what people were striving for right so the fall of 75 um he came out to the west coast with his family uh october november of that year uh he was in laguna and we uh we ended up playing tennis together with his boys and that was as i say october november and then it was i believe in february shortly thereafter that this uh, tragedy took place. When he was here, uh, he communicated with other friends of his, and I think we felt, um, and I, I think this was without looking back, I think at the time, there was an element of frustration indicated by him. Uh, 
another very good friend of his uh, was doing extremely well in the commercial real estate business in San Francisco. Uh, I had been with a uh, uh, with Cobalt Banker for a number of years, and that that career was going well. And I was just in the process of planning of, of, of leaving the company and and starting a business of my own. And he looked at both of us and and stated, sort of, you guys seem to be moving out, and I seem to be sort of standing still. Uh, his goal, of course, was uh, in the Foreign Service. He would love to work his way up to becoming an ambassador, and he was. Uh, Concerned that those jobs were more times than not appointments. He was coming from the professional side rather than the political side, and it was a path that was uh, pretty narrow, uh, and had some concerns about it. So police continue to search through the background of Bishop and uh, his acquaintances, and they find a significant clue from a neighbor who told police, quote, my husband frequently commented that Bishop was a brooding lone wolf and a frustrated type. His mother, you know, ran the house with an iron fist and looked after the children. She made most of the household decisions. His mother, uh, once he and Annette got married and started traveling, his mother, who was, uh, his father had passed away, I believe, his mother went with them. She basically was an in-house nanny and traveled with him throughout, really throughout, I think, his career after college. Uh, and she was always, you know, looking back to grammar school days, she was always the mom that took us to the beach, and she was a very active, uh, take the boys here, take the boys there type of mom, and, and a very easy mom, and, and someone that we all got along with very well. Her name was Lobelia, um, and she was... You know, if you're in junior high or high school, she was considered a good mom, communicative and fun to be with, rather than perhaps other moms who are a little more uh, of a corrective nature. So we got contrasting pictures of Bishop. One, he's this head of an attractive family. He's this diplomat, and it seems perfect for the outside. But then we also have this brooding lone wolf. And these are clashing against each other. Law enforcement felt that they, they're not going to get anywhere until they can establish whether this guy is alive or dead. So the police regroup and they decide to test the fingerprints that were taken from the gas can at the grave to test their suspicions. And that was that Bradford Bishop is, in fact, the person who had murders, murdered his entire family. Because remember, those who knew Bradford had their doubts, and a lot of people also thought that he was probably dead as well, having fallen victim to the same murderer who killed his wife, mom, and children. So, meanwhile, aerial searches of the area where the bodies were found continued. They were searching Terrell Waterways in North Carolina under the assumption that the Bishop Station Wagon could have been driven off of a cliff and into a river or innumerable swamps that are in this area. So this view actually prevailed. You know, people, it was the 70s. It's like they wanted to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, and... In yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, too, because we know that if this was now... You'd be like, oh, they're when, dead. When, 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 yeah, when Nancy, you know, if this would have been Nancy Grace... 100%. Uh, it, it would have been like, where is this guy? He did it. Where is he? It would have they're, like, they're like, no, their station wagon must have gone off a ravine during a family <laughs> picnic. Yeah. Like for sure. He they must have tumbled down a mountain. A hundred percent. So th this view essentially prevailed until the State Bureau investigation received a surprise tip from police in Jacksonville, North Carolina. 
and there is a Jacksonville in North Carolina, not just Florida. <laughs> I can pronounce this one. Jacksonville. So, at a sporting goods store, a Bank American credit card bearing the name Bradford Bishop Jr. had been used in making a purchase. The person who used the card may or may not have been with a woman. And he was reportedly with a golden retriever. And remember, the bishops had a family golden retriever named Leo. And there was no sign of him at the scene. So the clerk who made the sale was shown a picture of Bishop. And he believed he was, in fact, the man who had made the purchase and signed the credit card slip. Okay, so for those who knew Bradford, who were holding out the hope that he wasn't involved in this, this is a very pivotal moment and likely a very heartbreaking one. Yeah. Because it's, you know, completely undermining your innocence in that, like, you you were holding out hope that there was no way this guy who's been stable his entire life, never been violent, yep. could do something like this. The, the purported evidence is immensely in the direction that it's, you know, that the FBI and that story uh, is the correct story. But it's still, it's still, I mean, if somebody came up with a solution of it and said, oh no, this was a murder that was cleverly planned by blank, 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 and blank to set him up, uh, I guess I'd be in a position to say, I'm really glad to hear that, that there's a chance that he was not, that this was not Brad Bishop that I knew. So it, it was a, uh, it was an unbelievable act. I, I'm a long ways from uh, from a doctor. I would say, you know, something mentally happened. It's the only sort of explanation that I had, that something internally, uh, mentally, if, if that's, that's uh, medically correct, something went, went amiss to have him go from, uh, I can readily see him being disgruntled, but to go to Miss Ronald, to killing wife, children, and mother, um, that's like, you know, that's like going from white to black, and then there are a lot of shades in between that I could see maybe Brad might move in a direction, but certainly not that direction. So concerning the purchase in Jacksonville, it had been made between 5 and 7 p.m. on March 2nd, only a few hours after Ranger Brickhouse had found the bodies in the open grave. A comparison between the signed credit card slip from the store and papers found in Bishop's home were compared, and they were also a match. And the analysis on the prints came back too, and they were also a match. So it was him. They looked further into Bradford Bishop, which brought disclosures sharply discounting the image that was being presented to the outside world that this was this happy family without any complications. Here and there, a neighbor, a colleague, a Yale classmate, they revealed that Bishop was a deeply depressed man who had actually been under psychiatric care and relied on powerful antidepressants and tranquilizers. So further probes into those who knew the bishops revealed that there was a neighbor who said that Bishop and his wife were in a fight over their lifestyles. Bishop was frustrated and ambitious, and he repeatedly asserted his preference for further foreign travels as a State Department representative. His wife was vetoing his dreams because she wanted to settle permanently with their children in Bethesda. She was tired of living abroad in foreign and sometimes third world countries, and she just wanted to settle into a suburban, normal life. Bishop also apparently brooded also over the fact that his strong-willed mother 
dominated his home and family, and he was also having um, some suicidal thoughts. All right, so we're at the point where days have passed with no clues. No one knows where William Bradford Bishop is. And truly, people who know the bishops are are reeling from what happened, unsurprisingly. The only thing that, that, that was apparent with Brad is he was he was looking. He wasn't sitting there saying, this is a great career and I'm excited and going forward. He was looking at people around him and where they were on a relative, I would guess, economic level and feeling of success level. And he, being a very competitive guy, um, seemed to be questioning where he was in that, let's call it, ranking. Uh, so there was some, um, trying to think of an appropriate word for you, but disenchantment, I would say. There was indications of disenchantment of where he was in his career. All right, so there's still no sign of Bradford Bishop, but the police were eventually able to determine that the missing fireplace poker can we just call fireplace pokers blow pokes from now on? Sure. Okay. The missing blow poke. Blow poke. That was noticeably absent from the bishop home was probably the murder weapon. So after all this glaring evidence was analyzed and compiled, understand it takes much longer in 1970s and they could garner much less from evidence than, than they can now. Um, Bradford Bishop Jr. was officially indicted for killing the five members of his family, his mother, his wife, and three sons. His most recent picture was circulated widely, and the charges included unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and five counts of murder with a blunt instrument. Overseas, an alert was issued on the assumption that Bishop may have fled the country by ship or by plane. Remember, because we keep bringing this up, that he was this diplomat, that he would go out... um, um he, he, he brought the family to different countries. So this is what makes him now a, uh, a dangerous fugitive because he could be anywhere. He has connections everywhere. So, and he actually did a good job. His, his superior said he did a good job when he was in Ethiopia, Italy, and Botswana. But the police learned that something significant occurred at work on March 1st, which was the day of the murders. It had not been long after he had returned to the Washington office from an overseas post, and he learned that he had been passed over for a promotion that he really, really wanted. So that day when he received the news, Brad Bishop left work early, saying that he had the flu. And Roy A. Harrell Jr., who was a former State Department official who bumped into Bishop as he was leaving that day, said, he looked like he'd lost his best friend. He said, I didn't get the promotion. And I said, well, neither did I. And he said, yes, but I'm more qualified. Damn. Zinger. You know, so one of the things that we didn't mention is that when he went to Yale the first time, he went to Yale twice, and most reporting excludes that completely. So he went to Yale but had to drop out because of money because his dad was a struggling geologist. Yeah. And he would say this thing where it's like big oil companies – are rough on an independent geologist. So he had to drop out of Yale, but his initial plan was to be a physician. So he wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. And then he had to drop out of Yale for a couple of years. And then when he went back, I think he was probably too hungry to start where he didn't want to get into medical school and just do all of that, you know, put, yeah. put 10 more years into school. So he abandoned his dreams to be a physician and then ended up working for the government. 
So I think for him, like he always knew he was smarter than like what he was doing. Yes. Yeah. Or he always felt he was. And he clearly was. I mean, he spoke five languages. He was incredibly intelligent, rose through the ranks. But I think something that always really bothered him, and Tony mentioned this in his interview, he expressed irritation that these these positions of diplomats were usually appointed. It was political. It was it was networking. It wasn't it achievement wasn't by, based. Yeah. Exactly. So I think like he felt very cornered. I dedicated my life to being an, a foreign affairs official. I can learn any fucking language you throw at me. Um, I rise to the top of whatever I was doing. I'm doing. Yeah. And I believe he was the top in. He was the youngest in his class in this school. This this intelligence foreign agent school. So I think he's always used to being at the top, but then. Maybe he's not so good with the networking. Maybe he's not so good socially. And, right. You know, maybe he doesn't have, he has the intelligence, but he doesn't have the emotional intelligence to, to, back to go it. higher. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, like, intelligence is good, but the I ability. Mean, if you're in a job where it is political and the way that you're going to rise is through these outward things that don't exactly have 100% to do with your skill set then that's got to be tough yeah especially as a diplomat yeah I mean, a diplomat what you're supposed I mean, the, the entire thing of a diplomat is supposed to be some sort of rubbing finesse. shoulders yeah absolutely and i think the thing is intelligence it's like if you're smart you can study hard enough to to be as um effective as like a genius geniuses just don't have to try yeah but with the work you can so it's like even people, if if you're savvy socially and you study, it's like you can, you have it all then. Right. It's like you're socially apt and you also can at least fake to have what Bishop has naturally. But clearly he's like a savant with languages yes. and is extremely, extremely intelligent. But he might have been holding this shit back his entire life, like since he stopped being trying to be a physician, being passed over for this one thing might not have sat well with him so we can speculate on that till the end of time because motive aside the police were certain that bishop did do this so a massive effort was put forth to catch him drugstores in the south were asked to be on alert just in case bishop sought a refill of his antidepressant drugs and remember, the only member of the Bishop family other than Bradford that was still missing was their dog, the Golden Retriever, Leo. And unsuccessful attempts were made to trace him down, which makes me very sad. And the initial assumption was that Bradford had boarded the dog in a kennel or turned it loose on the road and he was just never found. Those assumptions remained until the morning of Thursday, March 18th, 16 days after the murders, a farmer, Roy Owenby, who lived near the remote campsite near the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, hailed down a forester, kind of frantic in his attempt to do so. And he told him that he spotted a Maryland licensed park, a parked car with a Maryland license that had been sitting there for about five or 10 days, and he couldn't be sure how long, near a cabin on Jake's Creek Road. Inside the car were some funny things. And some of the things were bloody. The forester examined the maroon station wagon in the parking lot at the base of where the car was located. The plates on the wagon bore, like I said, Maryland license plates, specifically plate DFL 896. 
He called to park headquarters and asked for a check on the plate. The car was Bradford Bishop's. All right, so let's break this down. The blood-spattered station wagon is found abandoned at this campground in the Great Smoky Mountains, which is on the North Carolina-Tennessee border. Inside, you have an axe, a shotgun, a bloody blanket, and some pills that are used for treating depression. And there were also dog treats in there, which was suggesting that Bradford still had Leo with him. Hear that, Jack? Yeah. So the idea is that he is in the park, uh, left the station wagon there, and then went out with the dog somewhere. And the area of the Smokies includes 800 miles of winding trails and wilderness, and it could be anywhere. And he already had a week's head start. So now this becomes a search for Bradford in the Smokies. Okay, real quick. 800 miles is, it's 3,000 miles from California to New York. So it's like one third of the country. That's crazy. That we're looking at. When you put it into perspective, that's impossible. And what a man can do on foot in a week, people underestimate. Yes. Yeah. So the idea that they are in the 1970s, a week behind him, and although they do have helicopters, I don't think they have the same like heat seeking technology they do now. Do do they, Billy? Do you know? Back then, not real. No, no, they they were just used looking for visuals. No, so it's but like, yeah, no, they're looking for visual stuff. They're going out there. They've got the dogs, probably. They've got the uh, probably horses, and and I've I've seen searches like this before over terrain that's a lot. Um, I did a story in Utah about this, but eight hundred miles. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot with a one week head start. Yeah, you know, with a genius. Yeah, you're dealing I mean, with think, a smart think guy. Think about going on an eleven hour trip, right? And not stop it. That's that's eight hundred miles right there. Yeah, yeah. Yikes! Good luck. <clears throat> so, bloodhounds were brought in to see if they could follow Brad's scent through the Smokies, and where Bishop's station wagon was discovered was five hundred miles from where the bodies were found in the Elkmont campground area. The dogs brought police to a house in a rugged wooded area in the mountains, and the dog went right up to the front door and barked uncontrollably and refused to leave until the police entered and conducted a search. When they went inside, unfortunately, there was no sign of him, but the dog's response indicated that Bradford had been there in the past. The police searched the park tirelessly but came up empty-handed, and again, this is in the 70s, and a search of this park would be difficult because it had snowed in recent days, and these mountains contain many highly trafficked hiking trails. So they didn't know if the containers of trash were Bradford's, or if they're tourists, or if they're hikers. It could have been a million different reasons. Seriously, and it's like, he, now we could pick up trash or a soda can and be like, oh, let's test it for DNA. Like, it's like, is this his? I don't know. Yeah. Is it not? Does, Does he this drink mean- Dr. Pepper? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, we haven't seen him on Instagram drinking a Dr. Pepper. Like, yeah. it's... It's impossible. Like I don't know it, how anybody solved any crimes back in the day. And yet people did. <laughs> I know. Yeah, John Mulaney talks about that. It's like before DNA, it, you basically had to catch somebody it's while like they were Russian robbing roulette. a bank. <laughs> it's Russian roulette. It's crazy. I love John Mulaney. So Bradford Bishop at this point is in the wind. And the search that ensued in the wake of the annihilation of his family is as vast, complex, and ominous as the man they were chasing. We paralleled ourselves in a lot of that early life. I also grew up and married a high school sweetheart, so we double dated a lot. I mean, just because the circumstances were were similar, um, maybe 
perhaps I related to it more than I normally would have if it had been uh, somebody else in high school. And to suddenly take news off the front page and put it in your heart is a, uh, you know, in, very, in some form or another, it happens to all of us as we work our way through life. This one comes with uh, dramatic pictures and headlines. The prominent attitude when it first happened was disbelief. And the disbelief was strong enough to carry you past sort of the uh, tender emotions of it. I mean, it was just, it was an unreal story and probably more anger than anything else that just this could not be. Okay, in part two of this case, we'll take you through the relentless search, the theories, and the deconstruction of Bradford's psyche as we explore the why, the how, and etc. I feel like it's one thing to kill your wife. It's another to kill your mother. Like, you know, domestic spousal murder is so different than parasite. Yeah. And it's so different than filicide that it is a fascinating thing when they all coincide. Um, and it it is a very underreported and understudied type of murder because you don't usually see the perpetrator after they kill no. themselves. Yeah, yeah. They, they either kill themselves. They or, disappear. They confess. Yeah. I I can't even think right now of someone that killed their mother and their wife and, and their, their kids and their children. at the same time. I've never heard of it. Besides, I've this. never heard of it yeah. either. When you hear family annihilator, it's it's murder suicide with kids and wife. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why this is so interesting because it does. Uh, it is a marriage between the three types of homicide. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Except you don't have, you know, I mean, the most recent one that we all know about is the Chris Watts case. And that's what we were talking about earlier. But he's a mama's boy. He's yeah. And he was but fascinating in that sociopath. And he just fascinating in that case is that, I mean, a lot of this has you you, we heard kind of hints as to the domineering nature of that household. Yeah, that it's a female dominated household. In the Chris Watts case, we see um, Shanann did not get along with his mother mm-hmm. because they were probably too domineering, mm-hmm. battling for kind of the dominance in that situation. But they, like, in this one, they're too, they just, they got they along. They were together. Both so dominant. it was probably hyper-focused against him, where yeah. at least Chris had like the mom as an ally against her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what they say about Shanann, and I'm not saying it's bad, she's just type A. She was like running that that household like a tight, tight ship, you know? Yeah. And... I just think it's very interesting. The prototypical movie, Psycho, is that was it. Yeah. It was the domineering mother. And Absolutely. then, you know, he takes Kemper, on, he takes on her one. persona. Yeah. Ed Kemper. I mean, mommy problems, I think, don't help. Well, there's a lot to talk about. There We're is. Like, I feel like we only like. There's a, there's a lot to talk about. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. CrimeCon 2019. Yeah. Until next week, if you guys have a first degree story, please write us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com or on Instagram. We've got some good cases coming up. We really do. It's going to be a good couple months. Yeah. It's going to be a good couple months. And uh, yeah, please come see us at CrimeCon. Use our code degree19 for 10% off your badges. Come hang out. Uh, we'll get, be in the matching outfits. We'll be we'll be the chicest biatches and broski there. 100%. And uh, give us some recommendations of places to eat and drink in New Orleans because we want to go experience the foods. Yeah. I don't like any of that um, soup, though. Gumbo. Gumbo, I don't either. <laughs> it's all got that, like, it's earthy. 
Yeah, I'm just, I'm not a fan of it. No. But I will eat a, an alligator hot dog. I will eat like a po' boy. Mm. Yeah. And a get, a, get a po' boy at Mother's. Woo! But yeah, come see us at CrimeCon and uh, keep your friends close, but not that close. Happy Over and out. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album, and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life.